You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. All right. Good morning, Real Life. How's it going? Glad you're here this morning, and we are excited about our new series. I'm excited about Advent this year. Uh, I feel like where we're at as far as where the messages are headed is very um, pointed. It's very relevant for um, some, just where we're at as a church, as a community beyond the church. And um, the other reason that I'm really excited about Advent is that it means we're done with Revelation. So uh, we talk about something else other than that. Um, so we're excited, and, and Advent means arrival, and so the Advent season is a season between Thanksgiving and Christmas. For those of you that didn't grow up doing Advent, I didn't grow up doing Advent. This is a new tradition that's been just since we've been here, but um, for those of you that didn't grow up doing Advent, Advent is uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. <clears throat> we take the four weeks there to tell the story of the arrival of Christ. And so we want to make sure that we nail that down. What does it mean that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us? That's what we're wrestling with during the Advent season. And this this first one in particular, where we're going to talk about the hope candle, the candle of hope, uh, really want to wrestle with this question, do you really want to be used by God? Because I think a lot of us love the idea of God showing up and doing great things in our life. We love that idea. We love the idea of being there when God changes the culture. And we love the idea of showing up in the moment where God switches somebody's heart, like this, this awakening moment. We love that idea. We love the idea of being used by God. I think that many of us fall short in the faithfulness to endure what it takes to get to that point. And so this Advent season, we really want to wrestle with this question. Do you want to be used by God? Because it seems to me that people who are truly used by God to do great things have to endure great things to get there. And it's with that in mind that I want to do something this morning that's really important to me. So I want to have Michael come up here. Um, You guys know that Michael and Rosemary have... um, been called by God to head up to Coeur d'Alene. And I wish, like there's a lot of people, anytime in a church that you have five people together, you have seven opinions about everything. And so uh, it's just the way church people are. And people have tried so hard to create drama around this because Michael and I have been more than best friends for 12 years, more than 12 years. And, uh, and so people are like, why is Michael leaving? Whoa, what happened? What's going on? Here's why. Because God called him. That's it. And this is the hardest thing that we've both had to do in ministry. But it's right. There's no drama. It's just hard. And sometimes being faithful to the call of God in your life is hard. But what I can promise you is is that it's better than anything we can come up with on our own. And so with that in mind, uh, Michael and Rosemary are headed off um, on God's next, next great adventure for their life. And it doesn't hurt any that they get to be with their kids and grandkids. So, uh, and here's what I can say. For those of you that need the drama, like, oh, that's why they're moving up there. It's their kids and grandkids. I, I, shut up, first of all. Like... 
Like, even if that was true, it's none of your business, but that's not true. That's not true. That is not. In fact, they both told me plainly, if it was just about our kids, we would stay here. This is about God taking them there. And so we as a church family get the privilege to weep with them as they go through their next adventure. And so with that in mind, I want to I do something. Last week, Dad and I did a sermon on the blessing, and Dad gave me a blessing. And one of the things that I love about being a person who's received the blessing from my parents is that we then get to become a legacy of blessing for other people. And so today, I want to give Michael a blessing, and then our elders are going to come up, and we are actually going to officially ordain Michael for the ministry um, as not just a vocation, but as a calling. And so I want to do this. Now, again, I'll be clear, last week we said this. There's five pieces to the blessing. If you missed the sermon, go back and watch it online. You don't have to do all five pieces for it to be an official blessing. This just happens to be one of those, right? So it's not a magic incantation. But what we believe about the blessing is that when we speak a blessing over somebody, we unleash the power of God into their life. And I can't think of a better gift to send them off with. And so uh, I just want to say this, and I've, I've got a couple of reps at this, so I'll try to get through this relatively unemotionally. <laughs> um, I remember when we first met playing basketball at the church fight night, uh, basketball league. Josh was on our coach for our team. Um, and uh, I, I met Michael for the first time. Michael and Rosemary had just started coming to our church. And I met Michael. And my immediate reaction for him was, gosh, he is just so cool. Um, he's short and he's slow. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was not, he's not too slow, uh, but he was short. Uh, but just cool. Just my, from the time that I shook Michael's hand for the first time, like my spirit's just been drawn to you. And I remember when you ruptured your Achilles tendon playing basketball and, and um, we, the basketball team rallied, took meals to their family. And I just got to sit down and, and visit with you and Rosemary and uh, Kobe was seven. I don't even know. Like, he was just this little thug just running around making, and Max, the dog, was, you know, chewing stuff up. It just was one of those things where, for me, uh, in my life, relationships have always come hard, and a relationship with you was never hard. I feel like God has bound our hearts like David and Jonathan, and that's not changing. That will never change. <sighs> Michael, you're the most relational guy I know. It's, you're just so good at it, and I can't tell you how many people I've had in this crowd and in other services that have come up to me and said, Michael and Rosemary are the reason we started coming to this church. Um, it's just true. Like, you guys are just so good at it, and I'm... I'm jealous of that. I'm envious of it. I'm proud of you for it. And I'm concerned for the future of our church as you take that with you. Like, we get this amazing opportunity to fill in that vacuum some way. Um, I believe that uh, God has brought us to this point where I can't lead you anymore. Um, there's, there's no place I have left to lead you but I will always support you. Um, 
my wife and I are raving Michael and Rosemary fans. So whatever it takes, whatever you need, if you need me to drive up there and beat somebody up, <laughs> um, I'm out of my zip code and I can be gone before the newspaper gets there. So uh, I'd be happy to do that for you. Whatever you need to succeed, you will always have my support. You know, I was thinking about uh, when we first met Michael and Rosemary, the, uh, they were living in a rental and they were having a house being built. And uh, the, the house that was being built was, had months left to be built. And the landlords came to them and said, hey, we need to give you a 30-day evacuation notice because we need to move in to this house that we're renting to you. And they were like, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? Nobody's going to give us a short-term lease. And so we, not really even knowing them, were like, you should move in with us. And they, not really knowing us, were like, that's a great idea. Um, because that's what you do and when you don't know people as you live in the same house. And uh, it was some of the best six months of my life. I remember the day you guys moved and I cried. And I felt a little bit like a parent who sends their kids off to college. The kid's so excited and you guys were so excited. It was your first house and you were so excited to get into it. I remember Rosemary jumping up and down when she got her keys and I was like, oh, you sniped my heart, but it was the right thing for them. It was the right thing, and I cried, and I, and I felt like a parent sending their kid off to college. Like, I know this is good for you, but secretly I want you to fail and move home. Um, I feel that way today. I know this is good for you. I know it's right. I know it's the Lord, but I secretly hope you fail and move home. Um, there will always be a place here for you. I love you guys. And so we're going to have our elders come up, and uh, we are going to officially uh, ordain Michael. This is something that is more, when we ordain somebody, our church, anytime we bring somebody on staff, we commission them to work here. But when we ordain somebody, it's bigger than just, uh, you're not just being employed here to work in ministry. You believe that God has called your life to be a life of vocational ministry, and that's a different, it's a different level of investment. And so we want to, um, he's here. I just wish he'd get up here because you're taking all my sermon time. So come on up. <laughs> so uh, we're going to put our hands on you, Michael. And, and here's the deal. I want to ask, first of all, do you believe that this ministry thing is more than a vocation for you? This is a lifelong calling. And you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've accepted him and tend to live for him, for him your whole life. Yes. Are you committed to upholding uh, the doctrinal statement, the philosophy of ministry, the things that you've been given here as you go out into, the, into your new ministries? Okay. And then with that in mind, um, Scott, would you pray for him and, and we'll ordain him? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for our friend and our brother Michael and, uh, and Rosemary as well. Father, we pray for them right now we, as we ordain them and commission them to ministry. We, we pray, Father, that you would continue to use them in a mighty, mighty way. As uh, Michael goes up to Coeur d'Alene, that you would open up the doors to ministry with people in that church and in the community, and that you'd use his gifts 
that you've given him in so many ways of music and, and hospitality and uh, with people and all of that. Father, we, we love Michael and Rosemary. We, we hate to see them go, but we know you have such a deep purpose and a deeper purpose for their lives. And uh, we just uh, ask that you would go before them and uh, bless them as they go, teach them, and we give you thanks for all that they've done in our community in the last 10 years. We, we love them. Father, we love you. We, love, uh, we thank you for all that you've done in our church as you have been faithful to us, through our people, through our staff, and through the finances that you provided. And we do, uh, we do pray that you continue that with Michael and Rosemary as they go with their family. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus, your son, and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So I want to reiterate this statement. Do you really want to be used by God? Because sometimes it's really, really hard. And the Advent season is an opportunity for us to reflect on what that means. I mean, the people of Israel have been for hundreds of years slaves to one empire after another after another, and it seems as if each successive empire is worse than the last one. They're cruel, they're bitter, they're, they're abused, and they're crying out for a Savior, wondering where God is in the midst of this big, painful experience that they're enduring. And so it's with that in mind that I want to enter into the text in the beginning, and we're, we're dealing with the hope candle today, which seems kind of funny, but it's very appropriate. You'll see where we land here. But we're going to start with the hope candle today. And so I want to read in Luke chapter 1. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Now, if you're taking notes, underline that, and here's what we need to wrestle with a little bit. God doesn't waste a breath in the text. Not a breath, let alone a word or a series of words. So when we see a phrase like this, we need to wrestle with, why do I need to know that? Why do I need to know that he's of the priestly division of Abijah? Why do I need to know that? What difference does that make? We'll talk about it and what we can learn from that little bitty statement in just a minute. Uh, His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Again, if you're taking notes, underline that. Why do I need to know that? Why do I need to know that they were righteous and observing the rules and laws and decrees of God blamelessly? Here's why. Because in first century Jewish world, there was a theology that God is good to those who are good and he is bad to those who are bad. And so if, if, good, if things are going good in your life, it's because God is pleased with you. If things are going bad in your life, it's because God's frustrated with you. So if bad things are happening in your life, whose fault is it? Now, there was a concession in that, based on the book of Job, that sometimes bad things can be happening to you, but it's because God is refining you and maturing you. So there's a concession there, but generally speaking, God is good to those who are good. He's bad to those who are bad. And there are two ways that you can know for sure that God is mad at you. 
These are not in that category of concession about God refining you. Number one is leprosy. If you have leprosy, God is mad at you. You have leprosy because God blew it, or God, God thinks you blew it. God didn't blow it. <laughs> the other way that you could know that God was mad at you is barrenness. If you can't have children, it's because you've done something wrong. Now, why do I need to know that they are blameless and righteous? Because they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Okay, wait a minute. Their entire adult lives, everyone in the community has been pointing at them saying something's wrong with you. You know how I know? You can't have kids. Something's messed up with you guys. You know how I know? You can't have kids. You guys have made God angry. You know how I know? You can't have kids. I don't need to know what it is, Zechariah. I mean, if you need to confess, I'm here. I don't need to know. I don't need to know. But you need to but I don't need to know. But something's wrong. Their entire adult life. How many times have Zechariah and Elizabeth cried out to God? How many times have they begged God to hear their prayers and God remained silent? And now they're so old, they don't even pray it anymore. Like there's a lot going on in the story. Now from God's perspective, God is saving them for one of the greatest privileges in the history of mankind. But in their moment, they feel beat up. Where's God? Do you want to be used by God? Because it seems to me as if people who are used by God to accomplish great things have to endure a lot of crap to get there. Let's read on. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by Lot. Now, Lot's not a person. You're like, Lot, I choose you. It's not that. Casting lots is a dice game. That they, uh, It's a gambling game. And one of the interesting things that I'll say at this point, this is another sermon for another day, but when the Bible actually talks about gambling is only when we see people actually doing it. So that's part, That's you can take that into your conversation about that. But he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And so I want to show you some pictures, okay? Let's look at the first photo. This is a scale model of the temple in the first century in Jerusalem. It's actually part of a scale model of the entire city of Jerusalem from the first century that's on exhibit at the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. This is what the temple would have looked like during the time that this story is unfolding, okay? So let's look at another photo. Those lots, that choice would have been made in this outer court out here on those rounded steps because they wanted to have this done in public so that everyone could see, okay? And then the next photo, they go into the inner court and they go through those doors into the holy place and they offer incense. And so while the people are praying outside, the priest that is chosen is burning incense inside. This 
Incense, the smoke from it, is a physical representation of the prayers that are being offered by God's people. So this is what's happening during this time. Now, let's go back to that one weird little detail. Why do I need to know that Zechariah is from the division of Abijah? Why do I need to know that? Okay, well, let's walk it through. What we know is that the division of Abijah, the order of Abijah, served at the temple between late May and mid-June. Because we know that, we can learn some really, 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 really interesting facts. First of all, he commits his service from uh, late May to mid-June, somewhere in there. It varies a little bit, but there are 24 divisions. Each one of them serves two weeks a year, and then there's three weeks a year where all of the divisions have to come together to the temple to serve, and you're like, well, that's really only 51 weeks. What is the other week? That's another sermon for another day. Um, So we know that they're serving in this window. Here's what that means. When he goes home, we don't have a a virgin birth with Elizabeth, so he actually has to go home and fulfill the prophecy. You know what I'm saying? He has to fulfill the prophecy. And so she is going to get pregnant in late June. Assuming that everything goes according to plan, they're old. I can't imagine God waiting around a month or two. Uh, but the, they're, you with me? She gets pregnant in late June. Now, what we know is she hides for the first five months of her pregnancy, July, August, September, October, and November. And then in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to become pregnant through the Holy Spirit. With me? That means that the conception of Jesus is a lot closer to December 25th than the actual birth, but that is beside the point. Now, So Mary becomes pregnant sometime in December. If we're consistent with everything, it's probably early to mid-December. I'm speculating, but sometime in December. Nine months later is early to mid-September. Now, why does all that matter? Here's why. Because Jesus is conceived in December during the Festival of Lights. And he's born during the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. So he's conceived at the Feast of Lights. He's born at the Feast of Tabernacles. And you're like, nifty. What difference does that make? Let's look at a passage out of John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him, that light, who, who, who's the light? Conserved during the festival of light, or conceived during the festival of lights? Come on. Came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. Now, here's a question. When does John first bear witness to Jesus as the light? It's right after Mary conceives and goes and sees Elizabeth, and he leaps in his mother's womb. Come on! That's awesome! He himself was not the light. It gets better. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and guess what the Greek word says here? Tabernacled amongst us. Why? Because he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> like, like, John is a literary genius, and he's given you all kinds of hints into all this stuff, but Jesus is conceived at the Feast of Lights. He's delivered at the Feast of, of Tabernacles or Sukkot, and it's this powerful, powerful moment that we all learn from these three words, division of Abijah. That detail all of a sudden matters. Now let's get back into Luke chapter 1. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Now, we have this, this perception of angels, the, like the precious moments with the blonde hair and the little pretty little halo and the blue eyes and the pretty white robe, and they're, they're all... One of the things we see in the Bible is that when people see angels, they're scared to death. They're not happy little precious moments, people. They're like foreheads and eyes all over the body. Like if that thing showed up in your living room, you'd be bugged a little bit by that. Like, let's be honest. Hey, what, what are you even? Um, scared, gripped with fear. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Okay, what? What prayer? Put yourself in the position of Zechariah for a moment. What prayer? We prayed for 40 years that we would have kids, and now we're not even praying that anymore because we can't have kids. What prayer was answered? Are you kidding me? You show up now? Really? I've been the laughing stock of my community my entire adult life. Now you show up? Are you kidding me? If there was ever anybody that had the right to ask a couple of questions, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and may, many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born, which, by the way, no other human in history has ever had that privilege. What a gift they've been given, but what a road they have had to walk to get there. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go out before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? That'd be the least of my questions. Like, really? Are you kidding me, Gabriel? Like, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. 
And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. What? Are you kidding me? Do you really want to be used by God? Because the advent of Christ tells us that God shows up, that Emmanuel, God with us, happens. But the road you may have to walk to get there is probably going to be very, very hard. Do you really want to be used by God? See, I think that for many of us, the Christmas season is about enjoying the plenty of our year. And we've saved and we buy presents of our excess or out of debt. It doesn't matter because we have credit cards because we're Merkins. And so we, we spend and we enjoy our family and it's brotherly love. And, it's, and listen, all those things are good. And you can buy presents for me. And that's okay. I'm good with that. Um, Phil my home with presents for me. I don't even, I wouldn't even be bothered by that at all. But if we lose sight of the reality that the advent, the incarnation of Christ, that God becoming man, born in a sheep's cave, we'll talk about that next week. I mean, you think the struggle that Zechariah and Elizabeth had, this social rejection you think that was bad? Wait till we talk about Mary and Joseph and what they endured. Like, you have to understand the Advent is a story that God shows up in our mess. And what that means for us is that if we're going to join God at, at all, if we're going to see him working, if we're going to watch him do great things, then it's the messes of our life that he invites us to. And so many of us want God in the plastic places, the fixed, shiny, happy, smiley places of our life. God's not there. God shows up in the mess, and he's waiting for you to join him. Do you really want to be used by God? What does all this have to do with hope? What does all this have to do with hope? How do we have hope in that? Hope says, I am in a mess. And tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. And because tomorrow doesn't have to be like today, I will be faithful and hope in the faithfulness of God. And it's hard. Gosh, it's hard. Man, there's so many times. It would be so much easier to just go, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go sit in a cabin in the mountains. I got to get away. I'm done hurting. I'm tired. I'm tired of being the strong one. I'm tired. Like, God, where the heck are you? You said that you would do things. Where the heck are you? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And for many of you that are in this room, like, I know your stories. They're hard ones. They're hard. 
hope says that tomorrow doesn't have to be as bad as today was. And that yesterday was what it was. It was bad. Hope defiantly says, I will be faithful because tomorrow can be better than today. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. And so if you're new with us, we want you to know that we have uh, an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in it. But we want you to hold those elements till the end. We'll take them all together. While they're passing that out, we're going to work through some implications. Implications are, as we worked through the sermon, as we prepared for it, these were some thoughts, some takeaways that we thought were particularly important. And I'm sure that there's lots of other places that you go like, that, that applies to this situation in my life over here. You're like totally, yes, absolutely, that's wonderful. These are uh, a few places that we thought were particularly important. Okay, so let's look at implication number one. Our faithful endurance may very well be what God uses to change the world. And what if it was in your faithfulness that God was going to give you a privilege to experience him working that nobody else in history was ever able to do? What if you were going to see God work in a way that no one else in history had ever seen? And the day before God showed up, you quit. Like our faithful endurance may very well be the thing that God uses to change the world. Next implication. Sometimes faithfulness is the greatest act of hope. Sometimes faithfulness is the greatest act of hope. And sometimes it's all we've got. Like I said before, your stories, they're hard and they're real and they happen and it's tough and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And, and if you're anything like me, what you know is it's not the first problem that gets you. It's problem number 726 that just keeps coming. Oh, my gosh. Like, back off for a minute. Sometimes faithfulness is the greatest act of hope. Uh, last implication. Hope begins when we open ourselves up to the possibility that tomorrow can be better than today. We're not locked into the story that happened yesterday. And tomorrow can be better than today. The incarnation of Christ, the Advent story, is a story of God showing up in a group of people who were desperate for God to do something. And what he proved to them is that even in the midst of all that mess, he did in fact hear, he did in fact know exactly what they needed, and he did in fact show up and take care of their problem. The question is, will we be faithful long enough to see it? I want to be used by God. I also want it to be easy. <laughs> um, I don't want to have to struggle. I don't want to have to see my 
my best friends move away. I don't have to see that. I want to go with them. I'll go sell cars or something. But if you want to be used by God, sometimes what gets getting from here to there is hard. And that's why I love taking communion every week, because it's a reminder that if we're actually going to be able to hope in the advent, if we're going to be able to hope in the incarnation of Christ, it's not going to come because we demand that God does our things in our time. It's going to come because we do what Jesus modeled for us in laying his life down. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our trauma, in the midst of our desperate aloneness, Thank you for being a God who promises to show up. Lord, help us to be faithful to watch you actually resolve the situations that we struggle through. Give us your hope, Lord. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.